The Human Experience. Hello, I'm Professor Catherine Colborne, the head of the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Our school is dedicated to assisting our students to become critical thinkers, enabling them to appreciate and understand the world around them. Our researchers examine all facets of what it means to be human. We form partnerships with like-minded groups and researchers. This podcast series, The Human Experience, explores important questions about humanity, society and current events. Join us for thought-provoking conversations with our humanities and social science scholars who are helping to improve the human experience through their research. Hi, I'm Belinda Galbraith and today I'm talking to Dr Kit Candlin, a historian of violence and early modern specialist of the Atlantic world. Thanks for joining me today, Kit. Oh, thank you, Belinda. It's a pleasure. Great. We're going to talk a bit about your research today Mm -hmm. and it does examine the empires that looked out on the Atlantic Ocean from around 1400 to 1840. Mm And from this, I believe you come become a bit of an authority on the history of slavery. So how do you think the study of slavery as a part of human history has helped us understand our modern world today? Oh, that's a very good question. Look, slavery and the legacy of slavery underpins a lot of modern capitalism. Uh, we've got an awful lot of people who are still uh, living in a state of uh, bondage uh, against their will, um, there are many millions of women, for example, not even working uh, in, in uh, the chocolate industry or in a coffee industry, uh, but maybe just in uh, an unwanted for marriage, a forced marriage, if you like. And we now class that as a kind of slavery. There's an awful lot of people living in debt slavery as well. This is a really big problem in places like India and South Asia generally, but also Western Africa, as well as out and outright slaves, of which there are several million Um, And most of them are employed in primary industry and in West Africa, uh, in countries like Sierra Leone, uh, the Ivory Coast, Ghana and Nigeria. It's particularly bad uh, and it's focused on the chocolate industry. Um, And uh, people are literally being bought and sold. So how does the legacy of slavery uh, work in that modern context? Well, slavery is about the mass production of uh, commodities. Um, and much of these commodities are fairly useless for for general health. There's no real intrinsic um, health benefit from coffees, for example. Sugar's not particularly good for you either. Uh, all of these are luxury items that we've turned into a kind of mass industry. And this happened in the 18th uh, and the later 17th, but the 18th and early 19th century, when uh, Western countries became absolutely dependent on produce grown by people for very, very little. Slavery obviously was was cheap because it was free labor. Uh, but even when, uh, if we just take the British Empire, for example, when they gave up uh, slavery in 1833, planters were looking... Uh, for a labor force that would replace slavery. And they went to the next uh, cheapest thing, which was Indian coolie labor, largely mm-hmm. from South uh, Asia and South Southern India. And they imported 
um, many hundreds of thousands of uh, Indian laborers to replace the slaves. So we didn't adjust our economic system. Mm. Uh, we, we remained dependent in our Western world on everything from mobile phones to Nike shoes to cheap clothes in chain stores like Primark, for example, uh, in, in bulk commodities that, we, uh, that underpin our economic system today. And that is why it's so easy, I think, for large corporations to obfuscate the um, supply chain to say they don't know where their cocoa is coming from because it goes through several dealers mm. before it's on sold to Nestle or Mars or Hershey's. Those are the three big baddies of the chocolate industry. But again, 20 years ago, we had a problem in the coffee industry as well. And wages in the coffee industry, uh, although conditions are generally better and it's more controlled now, wages are still very low in the coffee industry. Um, sugar is also... Um, so all of these kind of little addictions that mm. first Europeans uh, had, and then, of course, it spread to the rest of the Western world, mm. um, created a system which is very hard to reorganize mm. um, on more ethical lines, if you like. So should we think about that when we're buying our morning coffee? Absolutely, you should. Mm. Um, uh, as I said, chocolate is the worst industry, and, and the three big bad baddies here are Nestle, uh, Hershey's and Mars because mm. um, Mars obviously owns a lot more than just the Mars bar they tend to do lots of confectionery in Australia Whitaker's is good and Cadbury's is good mm -hmm. and then you have to look really for the fair trade logo mm -hmm. um, but we also have to think a little bit more broadly than just the chocolate industry we have to look at the the provenance of all of our foodstuffs um, and where it comes from um, you know people have um it's, I, I sometimes call it a kind of food fetish. People are obsessed with saving money yes. in the supermarket. They'll go on a reasonably expensive holiday and not think anything about it. But then when it comes to buying food, mm. everyone is obsessed with spending as little as possible. And I don't think mm. this is a sustainable model. Mm. And I suppose it goes the same for clothing. Clothing, absolutely. Everyone's looking for a bargain there. Yep. And um and in turn, those clothes have got to be made somewhere quite cheaply by someone paid quite poorly. Yep, in terrible conditions. Mm. So um, those, those low wages in the poverty cycle mm -hmm. of today are really a modern-day type of slavery. Um, yes, it is, but there is also out-and-outright slavery, you know. Um, so, so debt bondage is an interesting one. Let's just take that for an example. Um, the, the simplest form of debt bondage is that your ancestors, literally ancestors, so your grandparents went through perhaps three years of famine and the crops were lost and they ran up a debt with the landowner. And this debt was for uh, fodder for any cattle they may have had or seeds or or just simply weathering bad weather I mean and these are agricultural um, industries that are absolutely dependent on good weather and there isn't like there is in Australia a kind of even Australia going through drought the farmers have a little little bit of leeway there mm. that a lot of farmers say in India or West Africa don't have yeah. and so they get themselves into terrible debt uh, it's unavoidable. We wouldn't think it of much debt, um, but in, by African standards, West African standards, this is quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And when the person who took, them, took the family into debt dies, that debt is intergenerational. Mm. 
So children are being born literally paying for their great-grandfather's debt. Mm. And it means that they're tied to the land, they can't leave, they're stuck in a position. So that's one industry. The other industry is when children are involved and they obviously have a lot less leeway to escape than adults. Um, and of course, women trapped in unwanted for marriages, for example. And that's a kind of, uh, there's a sexual slavery aspect to that as well as out and outright human trafficking which goes on but if you are in a uh, an unwanted uh, marriage um, this is a, a form of sex slavery it's also a form of labor as well because you're tied to the work that your unwanted for husband um, is involved in mm. um, so yeah we have more slaves in the world today than we did in uh, 1790 mm. uh, and there are four million alone there are four million child slaves in Ghana and uh, the Ivory Coast alone, just those two countries. Scary. It is. Um, and we have an economic system in the West which um, promotes, if you like, or, 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 or creates a, um, a situation where it's easy for global corporations to engage third world countries for their cheap labor, and we're mm. absolutely dependent on it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the legacy of slavery, if you like. It's not about how, it's not even really about how many slaves we have in the world today. It's the structure of the economy that is promoting this kind of low wage labor or no wage labor. Yeah. And that's before you get into the specifics, like, for example, child warriors. Mm. You know, these, these are young boys aged eight or nine who have been taken far from home. They have no friends and they're forced into a life of violence and warfare. And if they're not killed very young, they're uh, inculcated into this system. And over many years, they're brainwashed uh, into uh, a life of violence. And often they come back incredibly violent uh, as well to their home communities after many years. Mm. So child soldiering is a problem. Human trafficking as well. There's been a huge... Um, there's been a huge effort in Eastern Europe. Uh, one of, for example, the most proactive countries uh, for ending female trafficking is uh, one of the original, if you like, uh, from the 12th and 13th centuries. Um, there were Arab leaders, for example, who prized uh, women from the Caucasus above all else. Right. Uh, and so now we see countries like Georgia, for example, who are smack bang in the middle of the Caucasus, they are actually some of the most proactive in stemming this tide, which, as I said, goes right back to the 12th and 13th centuries. So they're really breaking cycles of female trafficking as well. Mm. Whereas the slavery I, I deal with generally is the late 18th, early 19th century, and that's more straight ahead in terms of slave uh, activity. Mm. It's still very broad what a slave could be forced to do um, back in the 18th and 19th century. And it really depended on on luck, really, as to where you ended up and whether, in, in fact, you you survived the, the whole process of being a slave, mm. then being transported across the Atlantic, then being sent to one colony or another. Uh, most uh, African slaves in the Atlantic slave trade went to Brazil and the Caribbean. Because it's there that the demand for slaves was so great because the losses were so enormous. Mm. Now, frightening levels of mortality. 
Mm, I can imagine it would have been a horrible, horrible thing to go through as a slave. And as a researcher, you have obviously read and gone through some really awful um, punishments and social arrangements and and terrible things that the slaves went through. In reading this and studying it and, and going through it so closely, has has that changed your view on the world? It's made me, to be frank, it's made me a little bit more cynical, especially when I think about the legacies of slavery into the modern age. Um, but um, as an historian, you 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 quickly gain a, a fairly thick skin when it comes to this sort of stuff. Um, you can't be too emotional, I don't think. You can be emotional in your writing, in your output, but I think generally in terms of working in a world which is incredibly violent, um, terrifying and, and awful on, on so many levels, um, there is a certain more humour that one gets when dealing with awful subjects day in and day out. Um, you know, you become a little bit, um, uh, a little bit wary of getting too upset mm. and emotional because, um, you know, human beings um, generally live, I think, with uh, an awful lot of um, goodwill and hope, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people don't have particularly good lives, um, and that's just the nature of. Uh, the human condition, if you like. And slavery also, we see it as an aberration, but we also have to remember that that uh, certainly in the early 18th century, there was very little uh, compunction. Um, there was very little um, pushback from slavery. It was making so much money for Europeans, particularly uh, the Iberians, the Spanish and the Portuguese, but also the French, British and Dutch. Yeah. Um, and then it was only in around 1760 that you really started to get a little bit of pushback about slavery. It quickly built up over the next few decades. Mm -hmm. um, and Britain uh, would ban the slave trade in 1807 going to its colonies. Um, and then in 1833, they got rid of slavery altogether mm -hmm. because of this slowly building up pushback about slave-grown produce. It became one of the first really big uh, middle-class um, protest movements, yeah. if you like. And it's like all, all the subsequent protest movements from the 19th and early 20th century take a leaf out of the anti-slavery um, campaigns that were launched at the end of the 18th century. But prior to that, slavery wasn't an aberration. It was simply the lowest mm. rung on a ladder of labor obligation that people had. Um, and some slaves could be well-educated and treated very well, but the vast majority of them were field slaves and they were worked to death in a matter of years. Mm. And that was the reality in slavery. Mm. The mortality rate, incredible. I can imagine. Mm. You know, people, people wouldn't last... You know, half 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 the slaves arriving really wouldn't last four or five years before mm. they were died. Mm, terrible. I was going to ask you about the book that you co-wrote called "Enterprising Women: mm. Gender, Race, and Power in the Revolutionary Atlantic," and that looks at slaves at at the free people of color, the between mm -hmm. the slaves and the white plantation That's right. owners. Can you tell me a bit about um, what were some of the most interesting aspects to come out of your research for that book? Absolutely. So we're dealing with this book, uh, Enterprising Women. We, Cassandra Pybus and I, 
both independently of each other noticed that in these slave societies that were created in the Atlantic world, in the Caribbean, for example, in the southern, what would become the southern United States, South America, what we noticed was, and, and we did have a particular focus on British colonies, so places like Jamaica, Barbados, Demerara, places like that, and we noticed that there was a cohort of women that were descended from slaves. Uh, most of them were what we call free women of color. They, they had some African uh, ancestry. And some of them were formerly slaves who bought their own freedom. Uh, they managed to save up some money, often either selling produce from their Sunday market, uh, from their Sunday uh, work, which was usually... Um, producing extra produce that they could then sell in the market. That was quite a business. Um, but also they may have inherited from white fathers who had them as children illegitimately. Um, and then uh, we noticed that these women were really quite entrepreneurial and really quite wealthy and powerful. And we started to notice that there was a kind of general modus operandi for these women. They would avoid marriage at all costs. Mm -hmm. uh, but they would um, have children usually by several different men. Mm -hmm. So men weren't important in their lives, and they were like matriarchs who would run large family enterprises. They'd be very careful who their children partnered with and married, or they would keep their daughters outside of marriage as they had been. Mm -hmm. And this was a really prominent group of women during really turbulent times. So from about 1775, when the American War of Independence began, right through the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, up until the Spanish Wars of Independence, say around 1820. That whole period of about 50 years there, we see in this turbulent world of warfare and conflict and slavery and produce production, um, we see these women thrive. And they, they were doing all kinds of things. So, for example, a lot of them would run bars and hotels and brothels. That was very big and made a lot of money doing that. Some of them were into merchandise. Now, they could be part of the, um, the supplying of plantation economies with goods that they needed, whether that be um, wood clapperboards to make slave huts or... Um, fence posts or food and victuals to clothing. Uh, I mean, if you are on a large plantation with 500 slaves on it, they all need clothes to mm. wear, so you have to buy them. So all this stuff is brought in. Now, they could be at any point, these women, of the supply chain, but more often than not, they were in situ in the colony. They'd wait for merchants who they're often very friendly and connected with, often partnering their children with these merchants, and these merchants would deliver all these goods on the quayside at various colonies, and these women would then have their own slaves um, distribute that, this stuff to all of the plantations in the area or run shops in town. Uh, and they owned their own slaves, and it shouldn't be a surprise to, to see black women owning African slaves as they perhaps once were, because in a society where the basic unit of currency is a human being, that's exactly what you want to do when you're freed. Mm. After a life of slavery, 
and for one reason or another you were manumitted and made free, mm. the first thing you do is join the rest of the society in owning people. Mm. And a lot of these women did that. And they, they could own, I mean, I mean we've, I've studied the, the life of one woman from Grenada, Judith Phillip. Her mother was a slave who had a relationship with a French white planter in the 1740s. He freed her. They then married. They had eight children. One of their children, Judith Phillip, was to become incredibly wealthy, and she owned 280 slaves on three plantations mm. across Grenada into the uh, 1830s. Mm. Um, so these women, uh, and they're really independent. Um, they often send their children to, to be educated in Britain. And they become a real cohort, a real class between free white people mm. and enslaved African people. Mm. Uh, they're kind of a halfway house. Less so in the United States because the United States brought in laws against miscegenation. Mm. It was illegal to sleep with your slaves. Uh, it was illegal also in many colonies in North America to free slaves. Okay. So it's actually illegal to free them, even if you inherited them from your father and you didn't want them. In fact, there are lots of stories, particularly amongst communities like the Quakers, for example, who became in the late 19th century fairly abolitionist and against slavery on religious grounds. They were like the Methodists. The Quakers were some of the most important early movers in anti-slavery. Mm -hmm. And, and, and you find a situation where a, an old uh, Quaker would die and leave his children 30 slaves and they weren't into slavery at all and had these people that they had to look after. Yes. Um, uh, they had to provide for because it was illegal to free them. It was illegal to be a free black person in Virginia, for mm. example. Not so much in the rest of the British Caribbean. Okay. Um, and so that's why in... In those colonies, you had this huge group start to appear. And, and, and in some colonies like Grenada, uh, like Trinidad, uh, they equaled the number of white people, okay. which made the societies a little bit... Uh, on edge, maybe. On edge, absolutely, and unstable. Mm. And I'm about to start writing a book on a rebellion that happened in Grenada in 1795 called the Phaedon Rebellion. Yes, I was going to ask you about that, actually, and um, wanted to hear about this new book and where, sure. how this rebellion came about and what resulted. Oh, well, this is a great story to give you an indication of the, the tempestuousness of the times. Um, Grenada used to be a French island, and then the British took it over or conquered the French and took it over, but this left them with a problem. First of all, there were lots of French people who didn't like the British, who were mm -hmm. still living on the island. There was also a lot of French free people of colour mm -hmm. who also lived on the island and indeed outnumbered the whites. Okay. So the British aren't very popular to begin with. So we've got one of the great dangers for a slave society is that the white community is fractured. Mm -hmm. There are divisions there. When the French Revolution broke out in 1789, it quickly spread to French colonies in the Caribbean or to French populations in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And it brought about civil war on islands like Martinique uh, and uh, uh, St. Lucia, for example. Um, and 
The ideals of the French Revolution are quickly imbibed by these free people of colour who are busy reading what's going on in Paris and thinking we should have a Republican Revolution here on this island. We should get rid of slavery and we should kick out the Brits because we, we don't like the British since they occupied the place. Yes. And so, yeah, I think on March the 6th, 1795, uh, the free people of colour who were very wealthy and they owned a lot of slaves, told their slaves to arm themselves, and a revolution broke out. Mm -hmm. All the British immediately escaped to the capital, St. George's, built barricades and barricaded themselves into the capital while the whole island was destroyed uh, in this rebellion. And then a year and a half later, it took them that long, but a year and a half later, an enormous army arrives from Britain yes. and um, thousands of people are killed mm. uh, to put this slave revolt down. But it was a weird combination of free people of colour, um, very independently minded, very well read on the tenets of the French Revolution, and then their slaves as well. Mm. Um, and there were 30,000 slaves on uh, Grenada, uh, in 1795, and about 5,000, uh, well, about 3,000 uh, free white people and about 3,000 free people of colour. So we're dealing with a, a population of 36,000, and out of that, about 7,500 died Gosh. at the end of the revolt. Mm. There were no successful slave revolts in world history except for the one in Haiti, okay. and that broke out in 1793. And a quarter of a million people died in, in that conflict. It was really bloody. It was the, the, one of the largest and most valuable colonies in the world mm -hmm. uh, just on the outbreak of that revolt. And it was owned by the French. And they didn't call it Haiti. They called it Saint-Domingue. Okay. Uh, and that was really violent. Mm. Um, they tended to be. Um, this, these are societies that are... They're not just predicated on violence. Violence is absolutely intrinsic in maintaining order. Mm. Um, because you have lots of people, often these people are very handy ex-warriors from Africa. Yes. Um, and they needed, in order to stop revolt, uh, they needed to be kept in check with a rigorous system. Living fear. And absolute fear. Absolute, um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, it's all pervasive in these societies, actually. The yeah. violence is incredible. So um, I have a friend who wrote a book on Jamaica, and he was learning that um, you could smell Jamaica before you could see it because all you smelt is decomposing bodies hanging in gibbets all around the island. Mm. Um, yeah, the stench of death was everywhere. Mm. I got a story in Trinidad, actually, from about 1799, and there was a slave who was suspected of being uh, a practitioner of uh, voodoo, or as they called it in Trinidad, Obia. Mm -hmm. And this was incredibly influential on slaves, often to their detriment. Um, and so these kind of uh, suspected slave poisoners, actually, were put on trial and burnt alive. But uh, that was one thing. But actually they got this particular slave to wear a shirt filled with sulfur so that when he died uh, in the f burning flames, burnt alive, 
Uh, the smell of sulfur would remain for days in the capital, reminding everyone mm. of what could happen to you if you got involved in obia and the poisoning of slaves. Yes. Because often slaves were poisoned by other slaves. Because, you know, they, they planters tried to keep their slaves well divided amongst themselves. So, for example... They all speak different languages because they're all from different parts of Africa. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. Um, and they really, uh, yeah, worked hard to keep um, their society at loggerheads with each other, mm. I think. Um, yeah, to, to maintain this kind of... Mm. They wouldn't want them joining together because... No, because that's right. You've got a lot of handy ex-warriors who mm. just want to kill you, mm. you know. And they... And, and, and people want to go back to Africa you know they want to go back to their home and they can't they're stuck there on this island mm. or in a colony you know mm. well it's a topic that um, obviously still has a lot of meaning today and a lot of uh, things we can learn from it mm. from today in today's world as well and um, I'm really glad that you came along today today and oh, shared that with us it's been very interesting and yeah we look forward to hearing about the new book later in the year so thank yeah, you very great. much Kim. thank you pleasure <laughs>